0: Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Mary Beth Gassman, and I am the executive director of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University's Graduate School of Education. And uh, we are really excited because we have a special guest with us today, Ivory Tolson. And uh, for those of you who might not be that familiar with Ivory. He is a professor of counseling psychology at Howard University in Washington, D.C. He's also president of the Quality Education for Minorities Organization, which does some really wonderful, wonderful empirically-based research. And he's chief uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Negro Education, which also publishes Um, premier research in the field of education and today he's joining us because we're excited to talk to him about his book and today we're really excited that he's with us to talk about his book no bs and that means bad stats Uh, and the subtitle is black people need people who believe in black people enough not to believe every bad thing they hear about black people so a bit of a tongue twister but um a long title but really really important title and in the book he talks about important subjects that are uh key to uh, the lives of african americans and and i would say important to all of us so welcome ivory we're excited to have you here
1: yeah thank you thanks for inviting me
0: oh it's a pleasure it's a pleasure Um, so I thought we could start off by, um, having you talk to our audience, uh, a little bit about your background. So for people who are not that familiar with your work and who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm just a little country boy from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. (laughs) So, uh, I grew up there, uh, went to Estruma High School, which is a public high school, uh, graduated from there, went to LSU, Louisiana State University, got a master's from Penn State, and a PhD from Temple in counseling psychology. Uh, And throughout my professional career, uh, I've uh, held faculty positions at two HBCUs, uh, starting off at Southern University back in my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Uh, and then ended up at Howard University in 2005. have been here ever since. And also, I've worked as Congressional Black the the uh, senior research analyst for the Congressional Black caucus Foundation uh, and I worked with President Obama's administration as the executive director of the White House initiative on hbcus um, I started to to get interested in how data was being used to um, define the black experience and and, and oftentimes uh, distort the black experience uh, when i when I was doing my research for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. I was doing research on academic success factors, uh, and I found that there was this tendency for people to, for researchers to try to amplify negative information in order to uh, gain attention um, about the issue, but oftentimes about their particular research. Uh, But there wasn't a lot of focus on anything that was going on that could point to any kind of success factors and also i felt like the research was was um dumbing down the experience of black people um making it in as this monolith of of um negative information and not looking at the nuance not looking within the data uh, to find those seeds of success uh, and use that as a leverage point to try to to um uh, find solutions to some of the the issues that we know are present. Uh, so that's a little bit about my background and and um, and the impetus to me being interested in these bad stats.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I um thanks for taking us all the way back. I I like that. Um, so one thing that I'm curious about, and you you kind of just alluded to this, but. So you know you're you you wrote this book, uh, bad stats or no BS, right? And I remember seeing you give some talks, and also um, because we're friends on Facebook as well and, and and Twitter, and we follow each other on Twitter. Um, one of the things that I um, I've noticed is that you you very commonly point out misuse of data, bad data stats that hurt African Americans when you hear someone kind of perpetuate a myth, I do see that you sort of step up and, and try to dismantle it, right? And which I think is a really, um, to me is, is, a, is a really great service. And so I'm curious, like, is that how this book came about? Is did you just, you had been doing this over and over and I could be completely wrong, but you had been doing this and then you just decided to put it into a book or did someone ask you or how did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, it it began just like you described. Um, uh, I became sensitive to poorly conceptualized and oftentimes wrong information that was put out about Black people that was just being accepted. And I started to point that out. When When I first started doing research, I didn't really critically think about the data that was put out there about black people. Uh, I thought that, and and, you know, this is going back to when I was a junior faculty member, just reading the same information that everybody else was reading. I figured if the New York Times or the Washington Post printed it, uh, it must've been rooted in some kind of fact. Uh, So if they printed that there are more black men in prison than college, uh, that must be true. And that was just a reality that we needed to accept. Uh, And if you cared about the problem, you would accept that reality and try to figure out what to do about it. Uh, So I believe the same thing that that other people believed. Um, But as I started to to really analyze a lot of the the, the data, I found that a lot of things that we were saying just wasn't true. And so I began to wonder why we would continue to say certain things even when there was contradictory information out there uh, and why did why why were black people uh, specifically but the nation in general so quick to accept something that was negative about black people and so quick to dismiss anything that went against that narrative and so i started to just listen to what people were saying and you know how they would say it uh, you know, like if someone said something about Black people in single-parent households, you know, as someone growing up in the single-parent household, uh, I, I know that you can be successful growing up in a single-parent household. And and so I, I just became curious about where that information came from, uh, whether it was true, is there some context to it? And the more I found about, you know, how to, to really look at this in a way that, Helps us to understand Black people better, as opposed to just painting this broad brush of problems. Um, I started to just really believe that people were uh, doing Black people a disservice and setting uh, efforts to help Black people advance behind by by repeating the same types of what I call BS bad stats. Uh, and, and, I, and I was also interested from the standpoint of someone who, in 2008, wrote a report on Black male achievement, and where I, I analyzed high-achieving Black males and compared their experience to, to those who weren't doing as well, and I used that to uh, point out different uh, levers of success, different things that I believe uh, schools, communities, and families could do to help black males achieve, and I noticed that there was some uh, apathy and cynicism about the findings, and a lot of that seemed to be rooted in this belief that the problems with young black males were beyond repair. And so, so, so those are some of the reasons why why I decided to to write the book. Uh, I did a lot of writing, you know, through blogs and and uh, editorials before I wrote the book, and I, I would point to a lot of that information when I would give speeches and there, there seemed to be a, a appetite for all of those things to be organized in a, in a book. And so, so that's how I ended up uh, writing the book.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Cause it's, it sort of reminds me of, and I, I think one of the things you, you allude to is this idea that, that depending on who um, talks about these bad stats and who perpetuates them, they can really take on a life of their own mm-hmm. and um, and people can start to believe them. It reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, every year um, you'll see Harriet Tubman quoted with the, it's not, she never said it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they had known they were slaves. And yeah, um, mm-hmm. of course that has, that is not a Harriet Tubman quote. <laughs> and, it, and uh, but every year I see people, uh, tweeted and quoted and and it it reminds me um, just I mean this happens all the time right you have quotes attributed to people that they never said and yeah. and it reminds me a little bit of that in that you do have people and a lot of famous people who will kind of perpetuate these myths and give them wings so that's why I think mm-hmm. this book is really important is that it breaks these things down
1: Yeah. yeah
0: so one of the things in the book that i i was really drawn to and i've seen you talk about this a little bit before and and i was really excited to kind of hear your perspective is you know you, you talk about let's 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 talk about this line about more black men in prison than college and and Tell me, tell me what's going on there. That's a claim that's thrown around by a lot of people. I've seen you try to refute it over and over again. Um, it's still thrown around. I still pe- hear people saying it from all different perspectives. And mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what's wrong with people continually saying more Black men are in prison than college?
1: Um, well, the, the biggest thing is that it's not true. Right. Uh, <laughs> so,
0: um,
1: and, you know, I, I think that you know there has been enough information out there you know including my own uh that has refuted it especially at this point uh mm-hmm. where the the reliability of the data that we can use is is to the point where we can uh say with with a lot of confidence that there are hundreds of thousands of more black men in in college than than prison but there there's a lot of people out there that that believed that saying that would help to amplify the issue and get more resources to black people. And, and I think that's what um, mm. a lot of people who were pro-social advocates, uh, they weren't happy about, uh, about people debunking that myth and, and, and me specifically debunking the myth. But I would always say, you know, if, um if you have racist white people mm-hmm. and pro-black advocates saying the exact same thing, something's probably wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, um, you know, because you would have racist white people saying there are more black men in prison than college uh, to justify uh, or, or to, to um, make a point that that black people are, are um, more prone to violence. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: so that originated, you know, back in the report that was published around 2002 by the Justice Policy Institute. Uh, they used the data that was available to them at that time, uh, which uh, did show that there were more Black men in prison than college. Uh, but if you look at that data 10 years later, around 2012, you have about a 105% increase in Black college, black male college enrollment uh, and a count of hundreds of thousands or more, about 700,000 more Black men in college than prison. Uh, that didn't happen just because more Black males went to college mm-hmm. during that time. It happened because the reliability of the data that uh, the National Center for Educational Statistics was collecting uh, became uh, a more reliable. Uh, and I was able to demonstrate that through just looking at the institutions mm-hmm. that didn't report any Black male enrollment uh, back in 2001 and comparing that to their figures in 2010. Uh, And I noticed that there were many, many universities, including Temple University, which is where I I went to to graduate school, did not report any black males. They didn't disaggregate their their data based on race and gender. And so they were missing from the original report. Uh, I was at Temple at the time, so I would have been a black man in college that they would have counted if they had reliable data. Uh, But they didn't. Uh, so, so, so that's the that's the reason why why that myth started. Uh, the the original report was looking at state expenditures on higher education versus incarceration. So the so the report made some good points, but unfortunately, the only thing that people seem to take away from the report is that there are more black men in prison than college. Uh, and I think it's telling that a report that could have easily led to the line, states are overspending on incarceration and underspending on higher education, that could have easily been the takeaway from that report. But instead, it became the line, there are more Black men imprisoned in college. Uh, And the authors of that report uh, seemed to be reluctant to admit that they were wrong. Uh, They finally did admit that the numbers look a lot different today than it did when they wrote the report. But they they, they they have not conceded that when they wrote the report, there was actually more Black men in, in college than, than than prison. But, you know, the, the other question is, you know, why should we care? You know, we should care because it made us equate Black men in prison with Black men in college When we have two distinct groups of African-Americans that require certain support and certain types of social advocacy. So you have black males who are at risk of going into the criminal justice system and you have black men who have the potential to go to college. They need two different things and neither one of their needs are being adequately met by the systems that we have placed in the United States right now. But what that line did was it made people believe that if we looked at issues of incarceration, we were kind of de facto also looking at issues of college enrollment, which couldn't be further from the truth. So we ended up really neglecting the needs of millions of young black males who were going into schools that didn't have AP classes uh, that had undernourishment in terms of their their um, academics, that didn't have proper college advisement, uh, that had high uh, counselor to student and teacher to student ratio. Uh, so you had um, you had all of these different issues uh, that we were ignoring because we had this laser focus on uh, only black males who were at risk of going into the criminal justice system. We of those generalized black men in the way. That causes us to ignore all of the problems that are associated with the society that's holding black males back.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you for um, elaborating as well. I, I think I think that's so important. I mean, I think sometimes what happens when people produce reports, they they don't really think about all the ramifications of how the material can be used, and and also at, at some point, if it is misused, I I do think it's important that you step up and and talk about that. So I, um, thank you. I really appreciate that explanation. Um, So I definitely didn't want to have you on the podcast without talking about historically black colleges or HBCUs uh, because you have been um, so active and you really are a a national voice with regard to HBCUs in overall, but also research. And, And I think that that's really important. And so I I'm, I'm curious and as to, what are some bad stats that relate to HBCUs and how do they get used, quite frankly, to hurt HBCUs?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I always say that the way that we talk about HBCUs is very similar to the way that we talk about Black people in general. Uh, and and so mm-hmm. uh, there's a tendency to compare black people with white people and, you know, ignore the diversity that exists between both groups of people. And we do the same thing with HBCUs. We'll lump HBCUs into this one category and PWIs in the other category. And uh, unfortunately, all the PWIs uh, in people's mind look like Harvard University or Rutgers uh, or Penn State. Uh, uh, They don't look like uh, nickel state university or york's college or you know anything like that yeah but, yeah. but there's a lot of diversity among uh, predominantly white institutions just like there's a lot of diversity among predominantly black institutions uh, but we do the opposite when it comes to predominantly black institutions uh, we we look at a, a hbcu uh, and if they have trouble with uh, accreditation if they get a, a, they are on probation when it comes to accreditation uh, we tend to make that representative of the entire group. So the, the 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 first myth on a broad level is that HBCUs are always in trouble. Uh, and that um that that there's persistent issues with underfunding, under enrollment, mismanagement, and any other thing that you might, you know, consider as indicative of an institution that has problems. Other myths when it comes to uh, uh, HBCUs is that uh, HBCUs are not research institutions, that they're all teaching institutions, uh, when in fact about 20% of all HBCUs are Carnegie classified as a research institution by some level. Uh, there are no research one HBCUs, but there are about nine uh, research two HBCUs on the new Carnegie classification system. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a myth that uh, HBCUs are always in financial trouble. Mm-hmm. Every institution uh, at some point uh, says that they need more money. Uh, and we, you know, we know that from the largest institutions with billion-dollar endowments uh, on to the, the, the smaller institutions who actually do need that money. So does every single HBCU need more money than they have right now? yes uh, the, yeah. <laughs> does every college say that they need more money even when they don't need money yes <laughs> so 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 we yeah. shouldn't take HBCUs needing more money to mean that they are not fiscally responsible so so that's mm-hmm. a, a myth a need that gets contorted into a myth declining enrollment uh, is another myth. There, There is a declining representation of all Black college students at HBCUs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A generation ago, you had a higher percentage of the Black college population at HBCUs, but a generation ago, uh, we also had uh, uh, less Black students at HBCUs mm-hmm. if we looked at all of them combined. Uh, are there some HBCUs with Declined enrollments, yes, but collectively, uh, HBCUs have not had year-by-year year trend of declining enrollment. In fact, some HBCUs uh, have had increases in enrollment. Another myth is that HBCUs are, are all open enrollment institutions, are, are mostly open enrollment institutions, are institutions that, that uh, are not very selective. And there's a lot of nuance to this. There's a lot of HBCUs. I wish they had more open enrollment than they did. Uh, there are HBCUs that reject 50% of the students who apply. And I disagree with that. Uh, but most people believe that that um, you could always uh, go to an HBCU as kind of a fallback. Uh, that if you can't get into a predominantly white institution, you could always go to an HBCU. Uh, well, that's not true of a lot of HBCUs. And some HBCUs are not selective because they want to be their selective because their state institutions and the states have, have mandated that. There's another myth that uh, you can't get a scholarship to an HBCU, but you can get a scholarship to a predominantly white institution. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of students, because of their academic profile, they would be uh, more competitive uh, as an applicant to certain HBCUs, and would be more likely to get a scholarship. Uh, if you look at, you know, let's take Bowie State University for example, and look at the criteria of their presidential scholarships, their highest scholarships. If you had that minimum criteria, there's a lot of predominantly white institutions that you wouldn't even get accepted into, and I'm talking about, you know, the Ivy Leagues and stuff like that. Uh, So in that case, um, a student uh, would not be able to get a a scholarship to uh, a Yale University, but would be able to get a a scholarship to a Bowie State. Uh, So it's not about HBCU versus predominantly white in terms of whether or not you get a scholarship or not. It's really about comparing your academic profile to the, the, the general population of the students that apply there and looking at what their scholarships require. A lot of times you'll be surprised at the, the type of grades and, and ACT, SAT scores that you need to get a scholarship at some of the HBCUs. A lot of times it it's, um, puts you in a very competitive position. Uh, so these are just you know a few of the, the myths that, that I've come across.
0: Um, can, can I ask you about a myth that I I think this is a myth and you can tell me if I'm wrong. OK, so yes. um, with regard to HBCUs and this one frustrates me um, yeah. because I, I truly believe it's myth. Yeah. Um, I have people ask me all the time and I even recently saw I think it was an article in the New York Times by somebody who I like, but um, that was, you know, couched in this. HBCUs are rapidly closing. So many of them have closed. And yeah. I looked back and I think that's inaccurate. I mean, there's no evidence that says that so many of them have closed. And am I, am I wrong?
1: No, no, you're not wrong at all. And, and um, you know, the, the, the mere fact that Morris Brown College closed, I think at least 15 years ago now,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're still using that as the example of HBCUs being in trouble,
0: right? And it's not even closed; it's been it's been alive, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's and it's still yeah, though. and it's yeah, it, it's it's still open. Uh, but they lost they they lost their they lost their accreditation. Yeah. But in 15 years, you don't have any other examples besides Morris Brown. So it, it's it, it is this um you know, this notion we, we, HBCUs aren't closing. Yeah. Uh, there are some institutions that, that, that need help. They need support. Uh, we did lose a HBCU, um, last year, yeah. uh, Selma. Um, and, and so, so, so sometimes this happens, um, There you know, across the nation, there are a number of, of institutions of higher education. Uh, a lot of them, are supported by organizations and churches that don't have the same capital that they had once before, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they they they're unable to continue to support it, and and they close. So so closures of, of universities is is a you know it's a part of life as a part of the system, um, yeah. but there's no evidence that uh, there's a higher closure rate at HBCUs than than the than higher education in general
0: yeah that that's what i think too and i just i get so frustrated explaining that to people and and i, I you know i i've heard people say things like oh you know within 10 years 40 percent of hbcus are going to close and my response is always how do you know yeah. that like how <laughs> where where, where are you getting the data on that? So, um, so uh, another thing in the book that I thought was really interesting. And I guess for me personally, it's interesting because I've read all of the, uh, quote, acting white literature. And, you know, I, um, looked back at that, uh, literature when I, I think maybe when I was in grad school or a new faculty member and, um, you know, for a while that literature, uh, got, um, was really interrogated, but I have noticed that it's sort of come, you know, that idea of, uh, the idea of acting white and the myths around African-Americans have sort of reared their head again. And so I'm wondering if you can expound upon that idea, maybe tell people what it is in case they don't know. And then also like, how does it play out? What are the myths around it? And what is, what does the data really tell us?
1: Yeah. Um, well, That notion uh, was popularized by the work of of uh, Dr. John Agbu, uh, who did research. I think it was the 80s uh, where he did some ethnographic Mm -hmm. studies and um, his conclusion was that there was a penalty among black people uh, who who were academically capable and that uh, there was a, a notion in the black community that being successful in school was somehow associated with acting white uh, and that uh, there may be a motivation among black students to not do as well because they were afraid of that criticism. There was a lot of problems with Dr. Agbu's work, which I won't go into very deeply right now. Uh, No research is perfect. I I believe that Mm. his, his research and the interviews that he did with students uh, did help us to uh, have a window into their experiences, um, but there has been uh, lots and lots of of uh, studies that's been conducted since he did that 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 show far more nuance. And I think the the general consensus in the literature right now is that there's no empirical evidence that black people or black students will purposefully underachieve. I think where a lot of people get confused is that the notion of acting white uh, is a real notion. It just has nothing to do with how smart you are. So it has to it has do with things like um, how you dress, how you talk. And you can dress in ways that isn't necessarily associated with a smart person. We're not talking about uh, a suit and tie. You know, sometimes it may be an a, a ACD T-shirt or something like that. The type of music you listen to, so acting white becomes a very superficial thing uh, and something that's 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 kind of you know fun uh, way of you know playing the dozens uh, among black students. But people have taken that into saying that uh, black students are purposefully underachieving. There's no empirical evidence of that. There is empirical evidence among all races that the the smartest among you are not the most popular. Uh, and so I call it a nerd bin. Uh, and there's some data sets that I analyze and I describe them in, in my book. But what, what typically happens is the students who are doing the worst in schools are typically the least popular. So these are the students who are making Ds and Fs. They're usually the least popular. As their grades go up, their popularity goes up, but it peaks out around a B plus, A minus. And then after you get into the solid A, A plus stage, your popularity takes a bit of a hit.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, it, it, it never goes all the way back down to where the FD students are.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: goes more towards where your B minus C students are. Hmm. So, so, so that's a trend that, that happens with every race. The, the ones that are doing good in school, but not the best, are the most popular. The ones who are doing the best in school are less popular than the ones that are doing a notch lower than them. But they're, they're much more popular than the ones who are doing the worst. So among, among Black students, the least popular at the schools are the ones who are making the S and Ds. And, and that's true of other races, too.
0: So you're really, really smart. Now, were you popular in school? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I was popular. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't. Um, I didn't fit into the uh, the, the super smart. Oh, okay. uh, oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. okay.
0: <laughs> that was a nice save. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate just the kind of nuance around that. And uh, until I had taken a look at your book, I hadn't really heard anyone talk specifically the way that you were, you know, talked about that. I've heard lots of arguments, but not in, in that particular way. So, so another thing that, and, and I've heard you talk about this quite a long time. And I, I think I started hearing you talk about the, the myth of the missing black teachers right at the beginning of when the Obama administration first went in, I know there was a lot of talk about missing black teachers. And I, I feel like I started to hear you try to bust some of these myths. Mm-hmm. So tell us, tell us more about black teachers and their representation. And what do people get wrong when they're having these conversations? And I think this is so important. Because I hear so many people talking about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, that's a that's it's a good question or or good framing when you say whether people get wrong when they talk about this, Uh, because I think people's unwillingness to look deeper into an issue because they think they already have it figured out is the problem. Uh, So Mm. if you if you have a stat that says that less than two percent of the nation's teacher force, teacher workforce is black male then you feel like you have it all figured out just based on that stat uh, now that's an accurate stat but most people took that and they just automatically made all of these assumptions about black men avoiding the teaching profession and, and, and all these reasons why black men are avoiding the, the teaching profession because uh, it doesn't pay enough or because they had uh, bad bad experiences in school and, and so they want to avoid in their adult life. Uh, so you had people that took that one stat and just ran with it. Nobody really used data to analyze, you know, why that number was what it was. Now, when I looked at the numbers closer and just looked at at black men who had at least a bachelor's degree, and I looked to see, you know, if, if they're not teachers, then what are they? Uh, And so I used the American Community Survey. I looked at the occupations, filtered it uh, by only black males who had at least a bachelor's degree. Uh, And I looked at the rankings of um, the professions. And I found out that teaching was the number one profession among black males with at least a bachelor's degree. Uh, So so then it becomes, you know, well, how do you reconcile that teaching being the number one yet there? Uh, only about 1.9% of the teacher workforce. Well, first you have to look at the representation of Black men in the general population, uh, which if we look at the adult population, uh, that's about 5.5%. So if Black men were adequately represented in the teacher workforce, they would be 5.5% of the teacher workforce, as opposed to uh, just shy of two which still wouldn't be a high representation. Then we take that and we we look at Black men who have at least a bachelor's degree, and that goes down to about 20%. So we're taking 20% of Black men from the adult population, and then only 5% of them are are part of the, the, the population as a whole. And so that's where we got that low number. Another thing that I found, which was, you know, kind of interesting is teaching was actually a pretty well, black males were the most upwardly mobile Mm -hmm. in the teaching in the teacher workforce, meaning black males were the most likely to get promoted out of the classroom uh, to go into educational administration. Uh, So that was Mm -hmm. that was another thing that reduced Mm -hmm. their presence in the teacher workforce. Um, So. With all those things being considered uh, and also comparing Mm -hmm. uh, the the top occupations for white males, it became really clear that it wasn't black men avoiding the teacher workforce. It was that they had less people in the population to begin with and less numbers in terms of those finishing college. Uh, So all of the strategies in terms of getting Black males more interested in the teacher workforce really didn't match the data. Uh, there should have been strategies that was more so designed of helping Black males to enter into college and to graduate from college.
0: Okay. So here's a question I have while I'm listening to you. Um, so because you've been you know active on a federal level and we worked in a variety of positions where you could talk to policymakers and really be, you know, interacting regularly with policymakers. I guess one thing I'm wondering is how, how do policies get made based on this faulty data? And what can researchers do to help make sure that doesn't happen?
1: Well, policies typically don't get Created based on research that you do or research that I do, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just a lot easier for them to call the Congressional Research Office than it is for them to call us. Yeah. So, so they, you know, they have you know the ones that write legislation anyway, the ones that write bills that they hope to turn into legislation. They can there, there's an office for them to call to get numbers on different things. Uh, so if they want to know percent of the teacher workforce as black males there's a number that they can call to get it now there's two issues there and as a researcher you know that the the research questions is actually more important than your analysis of research so 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 if you're not asking the right questions Mm -hmm. then you're not going to get the kind of information that you need in order to make an informed decision. And the, the second thing is if they're just feeding this information or getting information from uh, some uh, kind of robotic type data wonks, that's only going to literally do what they want them to do, then they end up getting a very simplified version of the issues. And, and, and so that's what um, that's what's happening. There are, you know, some people in academia uh, like myself, who's been able to get close and who's who's able to um, find themselves in in some spaces where they can at least have these conversations and, 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 you know, even uh, give some input on some issues. Um, But if we don't do it systematically, you know, we don't change the culture of Congress. To where they value the best research and if researchers at institutions where they've found a very comfortable place uh, don't venture out into spaces where you know they don't feel as important you know you have people in the academia who are very very important at the conferences and in the ivory tower uh, but if they go to the halls of congress they're literally looked at like anybody else you know a, a, a preacher is probably more important to them than than you as an academic. Right. Uh, and so you know how, how how much do we really want right. to be a part of that system? Uh, and, and so it, it, it takes a lot of us putting our egos aside uh, and really think about uh, the potential of us being able to get our, our information, uh, where it could actually influence policy.
0: Right. Uh, thank you so much, Ivory, for being with us and spending this time, uh, teaching us all of, um, these new, uh, uh, ways of looking at, uh, stats and, and looking at them in, uh, the best way for African Americans. And uh, I just really, really appreciate the time and I hope that you and your family take care during uh, uh, what is a really interesting time in the United States. So thanks. Thanks so much.